Hi, I'm Sahel Janasari. I am a migration researcher and activist. And today I am very lucky to be with you and hosting the qualitative open mic podcast. This series is on ethics, and we aim to highlight positive ethical practices in qualitative research, particularly with marginalized groups. And um, in each episode, we're going to ask whether ethical guidelines are useful and what ethical guidelines may be needed. We're also going to explore how we can make ethics uh, as effective and meaningful and kind as possible. So today uh, we're very lucky to have with us uh, Chris, who um, is going to be talking a bit about uh, an ethics without borders. So Chris, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are? Thank you, Sohal. Uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. I'm Maria Cristina Quevedo Gomez, that's my full name, and I am a principal professor at the School of Medicine and Health Sciences at Rosario University in Colombia, uh, South America. What I do is work together with non-academics to produce knowledge together, basically. So working with populations and trying to produce knowledge together in a set of participatory action research project. In addition to that, of course, I have academic obligations. I'm a teacher at the university. Today, I'm going to focus on um, the collaborations that ha I have been working uh, with international um, institutions, mainly universities or, or research institutes, and how I have been trying to induce these institutions to work in participatory action um, research projects that, in my opinion, contribute better to maintain justice principles for these international collaborations in research. Great, thanks. So can you get into some of the detail around that? So what are the key principles you go on when you're trying to build these international collaborations and partnerships? What are the sort of ethics of your partnership building? For international partnerships, I think the most important element or, or ethical principle, uh, moral integrity. Uh, and when I talk about moral integrity, I'm looking at what we have right now in global health. Countries having un unequal distributions of resources, also different type of human, human groups or human beings having different resources, allocations and resource distribution. And that ends up in and global inequality, right? So when we are set up in this context of global inequality, what we need is moral integrity as researchers, as human beings, and trying to assure that we are doing the best uh, for the people we are working with. Oh, and so principles such as beneficence are are fundamental. The idea is not to do harm, right? <laughs> but also to do the, the best good we can for those persons. And for doing the best good we can, uh, we need, of course, to have accurate information and fairly distribute information for the people we are working with so that we are not um, asking them for informed, informed consent that is not really informed so that they have all the information that they need to 
take decisions. So that brings me to the next one, and it's fundamental to have participatory designs in this type of collaborations. Because when we think of participatory designs in terms of projects, uh, academic projects or, or research projects, we are including all persons or human beings involved in those projects as equal partners. And when we talk about equal partners is we all take decisions together. So these participatory designs for me are fundamental in being able to create this moral uh, integrity or to, to make it real, right? And of course, uh, before I mentioned the moral integrity, I, I mentioned that it's relevant to be aware of the different power levels, the different resource levels, the different conditions, live, even living conditions of each uh, human being. So these are for me three fundamental elements. When building up um, international collaborations, of course, we have donors, right? And those donors, in my opinion, need to have the principle of knowledge exchange or knowledge co-production instead of knowledge transferring. That releases some power differences somehow. That's, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. That's super clear. So is the implication here that if there is an international collaboration and people aren't using participatory methods, they're perhaps using more traditional methods, then that context is ripe for um, an unequal partnership or an exploitative partnership. I think that's quite a significant and substantial point, because if you think about it, I would say in the context of global health, it's, so most international partnerships are doing work which isn't uh, based on participatory principles. And I imagine that a lot of people might be a bit annoyed by by the suggestion that they 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 have to do it so i'd love to hear more <laughs> well i don't want to force anyone to do to do participatory action research but what what i can tell from my my experience of around doing this type of research is that traditional research methods are implying that the researcher is the one who holds the truth on who knows the know-how. And when you think you know the know-how, somehow you are forcing the populations to follow your know-how without actually actively listening to what they need or how they want to solve their own problems. And in terms of global health, what we have is a lot of huge human problems, incomplete human rights not met. And so when you think that as a scientist you hold the, the truth and you know what the people need, somehow you are missing half of the, or not even half, even more of the situation because the people is who's going to tell you, I don't take the, my medications because I have been told by the doctor that I have to eat before eating the medications and I had, don't have anything to eat. So I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to eat medications anyway. So you are missing a lot. What my advice would be is try to make your traditional research the most open for listening the voice of participants, right? And, and the persons with whom you are working or for whom you are working on your research, try to open the doors for them to tell you what their problem is. Listen carefully with qualitative research. That's always very possible. And, and then you can add some of those traditional methods like just a focus group or perhaps a couple of previous interviews, open-ended interviews so that people can tell you and you you get to know the context and you are not somehow entering like um, like a coed a rocket in, in the water, you know? 
Great, thank you. So building on that, so can you tell me a bit more about that? How is someone really going to understand the the, the context of life in a, another country if they haven't lived there or if they don't have connections there? Or how, how does that process happen? But again, from my experience, being being a natural qualitative researcher, just like to increase your common sense in, in trying to figure out who can I talk to, get to know the place. When I started my field work in one of the main research I have done, uh, it's in, it was in my country, but it was in a, in a region where I can be a foreigner without any <laughs> with clear distinction. And so I started by just asking in the plain people who were sitting next to me and were locals and asking them, okay, what is the city I'm going through? You know, tell me a bit about your city, how you live it, how you experience it, what are the pros and the cons of living here? And uh, in the airport, the same when I took the taxi, um, trying to find out the situations, who who holds the power here, who are the most powerful, who are the less powerful, uh, what are the social problems? And, and there I already filled up myself with lots of context, contextual information. Uh, and first thing, I, I contacted a person. My project was on, on HIV. I contacted a person living on, uh, with HIV. I just, you know, found the list of, of NGOs in, in the website and I contacted that person and I told the whole story and that person already gave the full information and became my co researcher, for example, losing up a little bit of structure of scholarship, you know, that that science have the truth. <laughs> that is my recommendation. You know, we scientists, we, we unfortunately don't hold the truth. We have to let the people speak to us. Great, thanks. But I was wondering, is this knowledge enough? You know, is, is, is this understanding? It sounds like a good starting point and you sort of made other points about what else is needed. But I'm, I'm thinking... I guess my question is, can it ever be enough? Because the differences are so stark and it feels like, okay, knowing a bit about context of people's lives and how they live is, is, is a good starting point, but it, it doesn't feel uh, nearly enough, I suppose. Uh, um, no, I, I clearly have to agree with you that it is materially and virtually impossible to, to reach the level of equity between a researcher and, and, and a local person and, and um, make sure that this inequality that is historically embedded is going to be dissolved dialogue. No, obviously not. Uh, being aware of that inequity is, of course, necessary. This reflexivity uh, is, uh, also has been told to any of us social researchers that we have to be aware and write about, of course. But when you make the effort of trying to highlight that we know that there are differences, but what we are trying to do at this moment in this setting of the project is trying to balance those power differences. It gives enough reassurance to the person who is in in balance situation to know that he or she is in a secure setting and can express himself freely and can also provide opportunities to participate. To give you a clear example, again, with this research I have done in Cartagena, Colombia, there is a clear difference between the co-researcher and and me in terms of power, a huge difference in terms of social power, uh, material power, etc. But during the whole process of the research, he felt strong enough to 
produce knowledge together, publish together with us, and also go to the local governors and say, I have been doing research. I have been publishing research. Here are my results together with the research team. And this is what we need. It does not mean that at the end, the whole power process is going to change between him and me. No, but he could at least escalate a couple of steps higher than if we wouldn't do that effort. I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, the influence of, of culture in the ethics of uh, international partnerships. So, you know, if we're thinking in the context of global health and in the context of uh, global north and global south institutions and people working together, in terms of ethics, at least personally, I feel like, you know, different countries and different cultures have very different takes on what is ethical. So, you know, you, at the beginning of this podcast, you talked about the importance of moral integrity. Well, what counts as moral integrity? I think there'll be a different interpretation from different partners in, in an international partnership. So how, how do you get around that? How, how do you equate, uh, you know, square that circle, so to speak? Absolutely, absolutely. There are cultural differences uh, in understanding moral integrity, for sure. What I mean with moral integrity, in simple words, if I consider myself as a moral integral human being, I wouldn't do anything that do harm to another human being, for instance, right? So in global health terms, I wouldn't buy products from an enterprise that I know that they are uh, doing child labor, for example, so because they are exploiting somebody else, especially a child. I wouldn't receive money from a donor that I know that country from this same donor is, for example, sending chemical waste to my country's ocean, for instance, right? I wouldn't treat without respect one of my students or one of the participants because I believe that I'm in a higher social status, for instance. This type of things that I honestly think we as humans, we share similar principles. Cultures sometimes try to play the game that, you know, things are different. But if we connect from human fiber, we all feel sad. We all feel happy. We all feel the pain when something happens to us. If we try to connect from this human fiber, either languages or cultures should not intervene in this moral integrity. It's the principle of not doing harm to another human being or even another being, you know? And also, this is what I mean with moral integrity. And it's so basic in global health, as basic as why should countries go into war? <laughs> you know, why do we need to show power to somebody else by doing these kind of things? This is moral integrity. Okay, cool. All right. I take your point. There are some universals perhaps that we could draw on to have ethical international partnerships. I can take your point there, but I was thinking perhaps, for instance, there's an example of consent and uh, autonomy. So, for instance, someone might consent to taking part in research process, but depending on the political context, the social context, that individual consent might not be sufficient. It might be that actually it would be good to get some sort of consent on the community level. And it depends on the culture, I think, of what is moral in that. And, and I think that's something that could come up a lot in, in global that, I get your so, point, but that there, there are clear differences between the ethical committees in each of the places, right? Uh, so I had a case that we just had with one of the students that we received with 
uh, from Global Health uh, in, from Brighton. In Brighton, the students that are coming to, to Colombia, they need to get uh, ethical approval there. And some of the principles that uh, they were asking the student to check for were not enough for us. So he has any way to go through an ethical review here. He was asking, why do you care so much for the students, for example, for instance, because ethical committee here is absolutely rigid, saying students are vulnerable. It doesn't matter which level of student it is, they're vulnerable and we are going to protect him or her. And and it's because there are experiences with people violating students in, in process of research. So for that is fundamental, and that was part of the things we, we were thinking of discussing, the differences in ethical committees' values and why is it important to always let the local ethical committee evaluate the project. You cannot assume that by uh, having ethical approval in, in the country of origin of, of the researcher when coming to a local, especially southern uh, globe country, uh, will be accepted. Obviously, there are different laws, there are different regulations, there are different cultures, and, and things have, have to go through the local filter, of course, for sure. And that also has to be discussed also, because in, in some of the, the, in the project that his, the student had, he, he was going to evaluate our own collaboration. And so in that own collaboration, ethical committee didn't consider some elements that for me were fundamental, you know. He, if he's going to evaluate the work we are doing, well, you know, there are some elements in terms of job securities from both sides and, and these things that need to be taken into consideration, right? And so I added some ex extra things to the students that he wouldn't expect, but that's how it goes. And that's great. Uh, what a brilliant example. Thank you. I think that shows the importance of, of seeking ethical approval from multiple actors, I guess, and, and, and local actors in particular in the research project. So thank you. I kind of wanted to, so you gave a lovely example there of perhaps ethical um, change or improvement in a research project uh, across borders. I kind of wanted to know, do you have some really nice uh, examples of global health partnerships that have really worked out. Obviously, there's a um, history of perhaps potentially exploitative partnerships, especially between with global north institutions, perhaps holding resource and power and publications and ultimately access to knowledge production. So in that context, I'll be really interested to hear examples of really beautiful partnerships that we can all aspire to. Yes, for sure. Um, in my academic experience, I have been facing, you know, very positive and very, very not so positive <laughs> experiences in with, with international partnerships. The center of that is the different location of the power. Uh, and so in the in, in the not so positive, uh, the, the location of the power was in the Global North uh, uh, Institution. And the, the person who was, uh, you know, working with me in, in that collaboration had clearly set up the idea that I was in an inferior power position. And, and that has made the huge difference. Whereas in the current collaboration that we are working right now, Brighton and Sussex University uh, uh, Global Health Center of Research and the School of Medicine and Health Sciences at uh, Rosario University, and so I'm in charge of that collaboration together with the head of the research center in Brighton and Sussex. And um, the difference there that I see is the 
power is shared. And why is the power shared? Is uh, we connect through uh, the human fiber that I said. We were friends at school, at medical school. We studied together. He also comes from the same country I grew up. And uh, we we were basically university friends. And when we met, when we were working together in Europe, and we happened to have the fortune of working in the same academic topic, and we decided to join efforts. And that's Starting from this basic human ground of being friends and respecting each other has made a huge difference in the collaboration. Why? Because every kind of problem, because they have been huge challenges and problems we have been facing, we have been dealing with them based on mutual respect, knowing that we both do the best work we do in our very different working conditions to make this work, joint work together. So he recognizes that I have completely different working conditions that he has. He recognizes that I have uh, also different level of academic tattoos that he has. And he respects that and tries to make it possible for me to work together with him, you know, instead of instead of pushing, he's facilitating the possibilities for, for the work. And another fundamental principle from this uh, successful collaboration is that we both have the human drive or doing good for our country of origin. That's what moves our project. It's not that he wants to publish about Colombia or, you know, I need to publish more. Or No, we want to do good for our people. That's the basic human motivation. And it's because we are emotionally tied to our country of origin. And so these two elements, human connection between the two researchers and an honest motivation to help and to do good for them is fundamental. It's not a perfect collaboration, obviously, because due to all the bureaucracy that we have to deal with and both institutions had delays in the timetables. But again, based on our mutual respect, we try to deal with this bureaucratic institutional problems and all these financial issues based on respect and mutual help. Another very important element that we share there is that we both believe that students need to be treated in an equal manner as any other human being, <laughs> students and participants in the research. So both students and participants are treated as researchers as we are in, in all our work, in the same level. They all have the voice. They all have the, the vote to decide how, how to and, and, and what to, right? So we started, for instance, uh, we, we had an, um, a participatory uh, methodology and uh, we started by asking the population uh, what, what do you think the, the main problem uh, of HIV, work on HIV, is in Colombia. And we started by developing a research project uh, to find out which are the possible contextual elements and structural and cultural and, and uh, global dynamics elements who are that are influencing the, the current situation in Colombia. And there, the main researchers were students and participants, basically. Of course, um, both main researchers officially were we, but the person who really gave the information were the participants and students. And the students are working together with us as any other researcher. Jaime treats them equally Although he is a high professor and he treats them as, you know, they were the sister and brother. And that's fundamental. Uh, I think those have been the most fundamental elements for the successful uh, project. 
Yeah, no, that was a very far answer. Thank you. I just wanted to ask, though, it sounds like it really helps that Jaime is, is not only a childhood friend, but also from Colombia. So as an understanding of that context that we spoke about. So is there something here about perhaps it's more likely that you have sort of ethical international partnerships when a person in the Global North Institution actually has a background and understanding and then relationship and connection to uh, the place in the global south that they're working with. That seems to me an incredible advantage, no? Clearly is an incredible advantage. You can also tell that not only from the person who is from the same country as Jaime and I are, we shared Colombian origin, not nationality, uh, but I have the same connection, for instance, with you. You know, when I talk with you, and I don't know if you come from the Global South or not, I don't know your background, but I can see that you understand the human struggle on, on, of inequality, uh, the global inequality, and I don't need to translate that as I used to need to translate it, for instance, in other collaborations to a person who grew up in the global north and has been working all the time in the global north and has some connections with the global south and, and, and feels that, but is not coming from childhood in that process, you know, is not having the long time exposure to that. Um, there is a difference. But also I need, I think I need to express this too, is it's more a uh, intellectual background, I don't know how to say it, my father calls it like uh, intellectual un unconscious or something like that. And is that somehow society managed to raise us as kids in a way that it comes to an to our brains in such a way that structures our whole functioning, right? So when when I used to teach students in the Netherlands and I was explaining to them that in some occasions the huge depression that they were feeling when when they uh, when this uh, recession of the of the eurozone creation started and they were not able to have jobs easily and their their human rights were not met immediately as usually are in those contexts i was telling them that this depression was usually not a problem of the South because children in the South or youth in the South need to learn to, you know, sort out any kind of problem to survive. So I was trying to train them in this, okay, turn your lights and sort out the problem. Don't be stuck there, right? That is something that for them, for living all long time, 20, 15 years in those always set good conditions was very difficult, right? So it's a matter of being able to understand both. And with this, um, especially when we talk about the colonization and this type of issues, I, I don't want to say that it's not possible to, to build up good relationships with people who grew up in the North and also have been all the time in the North. On the contrary, if we understand why is this happening, why is it difficult for them, we can help a bit and say, hey, this is how we experience. But they are also human beings and want the good for everyone. And, and this human being connection is what everything is possible. Brilliant. Thank you. What a lovely note to, to sort of come to the end of this uh, discussion on. I kind of wanted to ask a very quick question um, before we wrap things up. So are there any guides or guidelines or resources around international collaborations and partnerships, particularly the ethics of it, uh, that you could share? Or if there's any other resources that you think might be instructive to people about to embark on an international collaboration? Mm, 
thank you, Sohan, for trusting me. But to be very honest, when you asked me that, I started looking on the web and uh, on international collaborations, I couldn't find much or almost anything. The only thing I, I, I found was a WHO document on, uh, and it's produced by a commission uh, who Center of uh, Global Health Ethics or Health Ethics that helps the WHO. And I shared that with you. Maybe perhaps you can share that with the, with the audience. And what I what I saw there, what I read, is they have a good sample of basic ethics in health and uh, ethics in, in clinical settings, but also in, in public health settings and also in global health. And when I looked at the glossary, for example, they were having a good review on different different positions. Uh, for example, for instance, when they were talking about justice, they were saying, okay, justice is this and this and this, but also there are some different opinions and they give the different opinions. So I think this this could be a good resource. And well, I only have experience with two international collaborations. It's not that I know a lot of it. So uh, that's why I say thank you for your trust. But uh, I would say those four elements that I shared at the beginning could be more searched on the web and try to find out what uh, the people can find, right? Thank you. That's incredibly helpful, I think. And uh, I appreciate that. To build on a bit of what you said, I think there are texts around decolonization, which are probably quite useful for thinking about international partnerships. I think that gets you thinking about some of the historical context and the sort of political um, oppressions and inequities that, that still persist. So I would also add that, but thank you so much. And generally, thank you so much. No, Sorry, and, then, and, and those terms, I would also definitely um, um, advise the, the, the audience to look at participatory action uh, methods, for instance, um, not only decolonization documents, but also on, on also dependence, the theory of dependence. Remember the um, this theory of the dependence theory from the north, from uh, the south, depending on the north. In in this uh, knowledge transfer processes and also the power connection to that. So um, perhaps those those two elements are important to understand. And um, they can always contact me. Uh, the audience can always contact me, and we can share what we have lived so far. Brilliant. Yes. Thank you so much. So, and this is the final episode of the series. So thank you so much, Chris, for giving us a, a, a lovely send off. And uh, I hope that the listeners have uh, very much enjoyed this series on ethics. It's definitely a passion of mine and I, I've learned a lot from it. So um, the next series is going to be on making interpretations. So please do join us then and uh, see you soon.